Well, all right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It is uh, good to be with you all this morning as we gather to worship and to hear the word of the Lord for us as people this morning. If you would, go ahead, as the children are making their way out, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We were finishing out our series in the book of Jonah this morning with verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4. And while you're making your way there, I'd like to just catch us up to speed. Again, this is the last of eight sermons in the book of Jonah, so I'd like to set the context. Maybe this is your first week with us, um, and you came just in time to see the conclusion, but I want to make sure you know what's going on in this series. So as we've been working our way through Jonah these past several weeks, we've seen that this book falls into two parts. And in both parts, there's a parallel as God's word comes to Jonah, this prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, This prophet who had made his reputation as being a prophet who said a lot of nice things to the northern kingdom. Their borders were being expanded and strengthened. Israel was rising in national prominence. It was becoming great in that area. And Jonah had said a lot of nice things to them. And then out of nowhere to him, God's word comes and says, Go to Nineveh, this far off place, this place that has never known the Lord, and go and call out against it. And of course, if you know anything about Jonah, you know that he did not go As we've seen, he wound up going instead to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He set a sail aboard a boat, and then God did not let him go, but he hurled a storm at this boat. And Jonah was hurled himself into the sea by the sailors. And it was there that God, in a severe mercy, sent a fish to swallow him whole. And God disciplined him and also helped soften him through his compassion. There in the belly of a fish, as good as dead, Jonah repented and turned to the Lord. And when he was spat back up on shore, sometime later, the word of the Lord came to him again. And the second half of the story began. And this time, Jonah listened to God's call in his life, and he went to Nineveh. He decided he would not run, but he went. He obeyed. He took the second chance. And to his shock, when he called out against Nineveh, the the shortest sermon in history, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, one line, and to his surprise, Nineveh believed God. And Jonah, as we saw last week, didn't like that. He didn't like that the Ninevites from the least to the greatest, from the king to the cattle themselves, participated in a citywide repentance as they all turned from their violence, put on sackcloth, and cried out to the Lord appealing for mercy, saying, who knows, maybe this God who has sent this prophet will show us mercy. And of course, God did, and Jonah didn't like that. And Jonah has now turned in anger towards the Lord. And what we're going to see, though, as we saw last week, God is very patiently at work in Jonah's life, showing Jonah compassion, even as he has shown Nineveh compassion. And this morning, what we will see from this text is that God's compassion shapes us for his mission for the life of the world. God's patience and his compassion, it's for a purpose. He doesn't leave us where we are in our sin, but he is going to get in our lives with the power of his Holy Spirit and shape us so that we can participate with him in his mission. And so let's turn our our minds and hearts to the text this morning. I'll read for us Jonah 4, 5 through 11, and then when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. So if you would, hear God's word for us this morning. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we step into this part of the story, again, we saw last week the text ended with a cliffhanger where, where God just comes to Jonah in his anger and says, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah didn't respond then, and God didn't push the issue further. And then, of course, we come onto the scene where we just read this morning. And as we step into this story and we think about what it's going to mean for us as a people, we would do well to begin by asking ourselves about our own anger. What have you been angry about recently? And what does your anger reveal about what you love the most? Because anger is a fantastic indicator of, of where your heart is, of what you love. It can be that way in a very good sense. You know, if someone threatens your family, your wife, your kids, your spouse, whatever the case may be, if someone threatens people you love, you're probably going to feel angry about it because we don't tolerate things that will harm those we care about. And there are good reasons to be angry about injustice in the world. We saw Uh, If you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is angry most of all about hypocrisy, that those who knew God's word did not live like they knew it, and he was angry about death, that this great enemy would come and ravish his creation. And so there, there are good reasons to be angry, and we may realize those things in our lives, but at the same time, sometimes our anger is is for things that that lead us astray. Um, After all, it's 2020; it's an election year. Um, And whatever side you're on, there's a lot of reasons that are just being fed to you, whatever side you're on, to be angry. It's like the media and our Twitter feeds are just this nonstop conveyor belt of stuff to get mad about. The outrage cycle is real, and it makes people money. And maybe if you're like me, though, you look at it and you're like, yeah, I'm just sick of both sides. But then you fall in the trap and you get mad about how mad everyone else is getting at the other side. And so it's like there's no escape from this. And we're all just kind of like, it's only February How is this year going to go? We thought 2016 was bad. What's going to happen now? Or maybe, though, for you, you're like, I don't really think about those big things too much. You know, life's going to go on. But maybe you get angry about little things in life. You get angry that the kids just won't behave. You get angry that the boss just doesn't get it and he keeps changing stuff for no reason at work. You get angry that traffic just gets worse and worse because winter break's over, so traffic's coming back. This is Cobb County. But whatever you may get angry at the most, not all anger is equal. And since we tend to get angry about what we love most, our anger can be a clear signal as to what we are cultivating and trying to hold on to in life. And so for me, like, why do I get angry when I get stuck in traffic? Well, it's because I idolize control and productivity, and I want to get my to-do list done. And I don't like it when I'm reminded that I'm not master and commander of my own destiny, and that I don't always get to do everything as well as I like it. I want to set my own limits. And traffic and things breaking down and going wrong just reminds me that that's not who I am. And as we're going to see with Jonah, our anger, when we're angry about things that aren't actually worth the full measure of our love and devotion, 
often then we get distracted. We get pulled away from what matters most. We get pulled away like Jonah's being pulled away by his anger from God's mission. And that's exactly what we're gonna see as we step into the first part of the text. As we look at verses five through nine, we see Jonah's anger is distracting him from God's mission. Notice, as you look at the text, where he goes, where his anger leads him. It leads him outside to the east of the city. And he may have gone to the east of the city because he entered in from its west gate. That would have made sense just geographically and in light of his travel path. But there's also a possible echo here to chapter three and four of Genesis. Because if you know anything about the story of the fall and then of Cain and Abel, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden on account of their sin, they go east of Eden. When Cain is cursed for murdering his brother, he goes east to the land of Nod, to the land of wandering. And so in the Old Testament, going east is often a a trope, a sign of going away from God's presence, of going away from his mission. And so in going east of Nineveh, Jonah is very purposefully saying, once again, God, I'm going to try to get away from your presence. I'm going to try to flee your mission and what it is you are doing in this world. He is saying, I want you to come to me on my terms and do what I want, or else I don't want anything to do with you, period. And so he goes east into the wilderness outside of Nineveh, and he builds for himself this little booth and camps out in the wilderness. He's still holding out on hope that maybe God will come, uh, come to, to his senses and realize Jonah was right, and Nineveh should be judged, and fire should fall from heaven. Or maybe the Ninevites, Jonah wonders, maybe these guys are just faking it. And if I give them enough time, they'll repent of their repentance and go right back to their old ways. But he doesn't want to lean in and participate in what God is doing among the Ninevites. Again, he could have gone back into the city. If they're responding to that one sermon, there was a lot of good ministry to be done in Nineveh, but he doesn't want to do that. Instead, he gets busy building his own little kingdom. And his booth, as we picture this booth in the wilderness, I was thinking, I was like, oh man, you know, okay, I get this. I've built some shelters in my days of Boy Scouts. But his booth probably wasn't that impressive. Like if you were in Scouts, you would have looked at him and be like, yeah, no merit badge for you, Jonah. Because this is the wilderness. There's not a lot of stuff around for him to build this booth. It was a futile effort. He was probably building it with just little shrubbery and, and you know, bare branches. He's trying to find shelter under the desert sun by piling up some dead branches. And objectively speaking, it's a fool's errand. But notice he doesn't care. He's going to make his point. He's angry. And the remarkable thing, though, is that God doesn't just let him go. It's like, all right, if you want to build a booth in the desert, go for it. I've got other stuff I'm going to do. God patiently pursues him even now. And we see again how active God's patience is in our lives. God's patience is not passive, where he's just like, all right, you know, I'm just going to let you be. His patience is a very real presence in our life that is meant to change us by the power of his spirit. And that's what he's doing now for Jonah, And the first step we see of his patient involvement in Jonah's life is he appoints for Jonah this little plant. And that word is the same word used for the fish. We see God has been at work in Jonah's life all throughout this story. He appointed the fish to save him from the sea, and now he appoints this plant to save him from the sun. And so this plant, it may have been something like a castor oil plant that grows quickly. It was certainly some sort of miraculous sovereign initiative of God that this plant just springs up overnight, and its leaves would have been huge, And it would have provided the shade that Jonah couldn't provide for himself. And notice that it says very clearly that God does this to save Jonah from his discomfort. 
And your Bible might have a footnote there that says from disaster or from evil because it's the same word used in verse 10 of chapter three when God turns and relents from the disaster, translated here discomfort, that he said he would do to Nineveh. So the point is that the very thing that Jonah was so mad at God for doing for Nineveh, God's now doing for Jonah. He's saying, all right, Jonah, you want to get mad at Nineveh or mad at me for sparing Nineveh and saving them from their discomfort, from their disaster, from their evil? I'm actually going to do the same thing for you here. And so he's setting the stage to show Jonah his compassion in a deeper way. And of course, then Jonah delights in this plant. It's his only hope. And whereas he was exceedingly angry because of God's compassion for Nineveh, he's now exceedingly happy, glad for God's compassion for him, for this little plant. And notice, though, he doesn't thank God for the plant. He can't see past his own comfort. That's often like me and probably like many of us this morning. We don't see past the way God is good to us in our circumstances. We just turn on autopilot and we become exceedingly glad on account of our circumstances turning out just how we want. But like Jonah, we don't turn to God in thanksgiving and in praise. But as we see though, God's work on Jonah has only just begun because next he appoints this little worm to come and kill this plant and a scorching east wind to blast apart what's left of Jonah's comfort. The sun beats down on his head and once again he wishes for death just like he did in the earlier part of chapter four. And once again though, God ignores Jonah's self-centered request about, oh Lord, just take my life. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And instead he asked him about his anger and he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry about this plant? And before we get to what God's gonna say to Jonah's response, because Jonah says, of course I do well to be angry about this plant, like angry enough to die. I'm really frustrated, Lord. This was the one thing that was keeping me going, the one thing that was sustaining me, and now you took it. And the point to see here is that Jonah is drawing out, or God is drawing out of Jonah the fact that Jonah has sought to isolate himself in a world of self-ordained comfort. But God is now ordaining discomfort in Jonah's life. Why? to draw Jonah out of this anger that is killing him from the inside out, that is keeping him from understanding who the Lord his God is, that is keeping him from understanding what God is up to in the world. God is showing Jonah that there's something more important in his life than his own comfort. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a really interesting uh, reflection on this from a sermon he preached on this text, uh, just about the role of discomfort in our lives. He says, trouble may come when we think ourselves secure, I will tell you when you will get into a comfortable place if you are a Christian, and that is when you pass out of this world altogether, and you will not find it anywhere else. Go where you may on this globe. There are no islands upon which the sea does not sometimes beat roughly. There is no atmosphere so calm, but that the east wind will disturb it sooner or later. You may go and sit in your booth if you like, But there shall come to you, even in that booth, the checks of comfort and of loss, of gourds which spring up in a night and which also wither in a night. Now Spurgeon's point is that we shouldn't get angry when our comforts get interrupted in life because he understands that we spend so much time trying to live like we're in the midst of a Coca-Cola commercial. Like we want endless fun in the sun. We want to be driving along in life, windows down, tunes just jamming, wind blowing through our hair, and we just want that to be the state of existence for all time. 
But then the engine sputters or your tire goes flat. Something goes wrong either literally with your car or in something else in your life, and the comfort's gone in an instant. And we get angry. We get mad. Then we start praying, Lord, would you just make these circumstances get better? But the trouble that we often face in our lives is that we want God to comfort us with the circumstances and with the idols we've already picked out for ourselves. We want God's goodness to establish our kingdoms of comfort rather than for God's goodness to draw us out of ourselves and bring us into his kingdom of grace in Christ. And I think for a lot of us, the reason we want God to give us comfort in our circumstances is because at core, we're often very uncomfortable with ourselves. But as God is doing with Jonah, he often uses discomfort in our circumstances to draw us closer to himself, to rip off the mask of busyness that so many of us feverishly try to keep on our faces that hide the pain and the guilt and the shame that we hide inside. And in my own life, that is often the case. In high school, I can remember taking um, way out of context. So if you're in high school, don't copy me here. But I took uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15.10, where Paul talks about his life and his ministry as an apostle. And he says, and I worked harder than any of them. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. That's, that's my speed. You know, I'm not, I was not a ladies' man. As you can tell by um, my size and stature, I wasn't exactly very athletic um, didn't even feel that like cool or collected around most of my peers. Like I just felt out of place. It's kind of nerdy. Um, didn't really know what I liked. But I realized sophomore year, like I can work really hard, and I can get results. And people will tell me good job, and they'll build me up for that. And so all the while throughout high school, I just built this mask on my life of busyness and establishing comfort in my circumstances by getting the job done and by going like ten miles further than anybody else would. But all the while, in my heart, there was just this black hole of guilt and shame for things that I was scared to talk about with anybody. And my busyness and my, and my trying to control my circumstances, I was just using that to keep, keep enough comfort in my life that I wouldn't have to stare at the demon in the mirror. And it was just over time that God would use moments of discomfort to draw me out of that or sometimes just to expose me and, and then he, he would send people who would speak a word of grace and remind me, no, listen to the gospel you've known since a child and see how it deals with these things you're carrying. And notice how your control of your circumstances is not making you any better. And so for us, we should all ask the question this Lord's Day, how has God used discomfort to strengthen your love for him and for your neighbor? Because again, our instant reaction when our comfort in our circumstances is shattered, we all want to get angry. But next time you find yourself there, and you're going to probably find yourself there this week, ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing here? How are you using this discomfort in my circumstances to either show me like you are that good that you can deal with the things that I've been trying to stuff down and I don't want to talk about? Or how can you show me that your love is so much bigger than anything else I could devote my life to? And how, how could maybe God be ripping you out of the jet stream of your busyness so your eyes are open to see somebody next to you who needs a good friend, who needs someone to love them well, to point them to Jesus. But two things are for sure in life, is then that is that discomfort is gonna happen because we live in a fallen and broken world. But then second, as we're seeing as God is doing in Jonah, God can and he will use our discomfort for his glory, for his kingdom, for the good of others, for the life of the world. 
So let's see how he makes that pivot happen in Jonah's life. Let's look back at the text and see verses 10 through 11 as God's compassion shapes Jonah for his mission. So what God is doing is really, really good discipleship because what what Jonah may have thought is, I can't love this kind of person. I can't love the Ninevites. These kinds of people are outside of my realm of expertise. Like again, Nineveh, like that's, that's the Assyrians, they're the bad guys. I'm an Israelite, I can't do this. But what God does in, sh- uh, in sending this plant is he's showing Jonah, Jonah, you can show compassion. You can show pity. If you can pity this plant, Jonah, you can pity the Ninevites, just as I have done. Jonah's problem is not that he cannot be compassionate. Jonah's problem is that he devotes his compassion, his love, his energy, his entire heart to all the wrong things. His problem is that not that he cannot, but that he will not be compassionate for the things of the Lord. He has no excuse. And God's showing him. And that's exactly the same point, by the way. A lot of people are always like, why does this book end with the word cattle? Like, what is going on there? Uh, Well, it's the same point. God's point to Jonah is like, look, if you're going to pity a plant, then surely you should pity these cows, even if they're owned by the Ninevites. Like, the cows didn't do anything wrong, so pity them. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to pity the plant and if you're going to pity the cows, then how about pitying 120,000 people that I've made in my image? Because that's who we're talking about here, Jonah. We're not talking about a plant. We're not talking about a cow. We're talking about a human being. And I find it really interesting. Notice how God describes these 120,000 Ninevites. He says they're not knowing their right hand from their left. That's really interesting because in Scripture, this idiom refers to people who are ignorant and who are perhaps not mature enough to discern the difference between right and wrong. Now, God is not saying that the Ninevites are off the hook and they were innocent and that their violence and their sin was no big deal. He would not have sent Jonah with this warning if that weren't the case. Disaster would have fallen on them had they not turned from their violence. So God's wrath for sin is real. His wrath for their sin is real. His wrath for our sin is real. But God's wrath for sin is not just because he's frustrated that some people have inconvenienced him by breaking the rules he set up to keep the peace in the world. God's wrath for sin is because sin destroys what God loves most. It destroys us, his people. It destroys our relationship with him, and it blinds us as it blinded them, and it makes us as if we don't know our right hand from our left. And so God, although his wrath for sin is real, he also knew that the Ninevites were so lost in their sin that the only way for them to be spared of his wrath and to know his compassion was not just for them to figure things out, but was for him to send Jonah, this prophet, to come and bring a better word to them. So that maybe some of these blind sinners could regain their sight and not just figure out which of their hands was which, but turn to the Lord, their creator, God, and know him. So yes, Nineveh was godless by their own actions, just as we all are outside of Christ. But as we can see from God's work in Jonah's life and from his actions, Nineveh was not God-forsaken. God's compassion led him to send Jonah to proclaim this word to them. And that is the mission that his compassion was shaping Jonah for, even though it's going to take so much time. And you may wonder, though, well, does it work for Jonah? Like Nothing happens. It ends in a question. How do we know that God's compassion shaped Jonah and then he got with the program, that he got excited about God's mission? 
Well, the proof, though, although the text ends in a cliffhanger, and we'll get to that in a second, the proof that God's compassion transforms Jonah's life is in your lap. We have this story because somebody told it, and that somebody was most likely Jonah. Who else would tell a story that makes them look so bad when we know from the early part of his life this guy idolizes his reputation? Why would he share a story that gives him a reputation of a coward who doesn't want to do what God does, who's stubborn and petty? Why would he tell this story unless he knew that it would be for the sake of growing God's mission? And he would only have thought that if God's compassion had so gripped his heart that he'd been radically changed. So I think he was. And so we can see that God's compassion can do a great work in our lives and can change even someone who is hardened in idolatry and ethnocentrism and racism as Jonah was. It changed him. And it can change us too. And so the question for us is, how is God's compassion shaping us to be involved in his mission for the life of the world, both individually and together as a church body? Where is God using his word? Where is he using this story to shape us, to be a people who recognize, like, we have hearts, we have loves. Are we devoting them to the things of the Lord or to our comfort? I love how Keller talks about this. He says, the book of Jonah is a shot across the bow. God asks, how can we look at anyone, even those with deeply opposing beliefs and practices, with no compassion? If your compassion is going to resemble God's, you must abandon a cozy world of self-protection. God's compassion meant he could not stay perched above the circle of the earth and simply feel bad for us. He came down. He took on a human nature. He literally stepped into our shoes and into our condition and problems and walked with us. If you have a friend who's going through a really hard time, don't be too busy to spend time with them. Walk with them through this suffering. Of course, you're going to weep. It's going to hurt. That's what God did for you. I like Keller's logic here in his argument because he's showing God's compassion for us. It's marvelously displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then notice the way he first talks about participating in God's mission. It's not with sweeping societal reforms where, you know, you go walking through the streets of Kennesaw like Jonah and say, hey, turn from this and turn from that and looking for everyone to repent like Nineveh does. It's not society-wide. It's not even about, you know, write amazing books. He says, no, start by participating in God's mission. Start by being a good friend. Something as ordinary and everyday as friendship. Because if you've ever experienced a good friendship, you know that it is a very extraordinary thing. And that that is often the seedbed of the most fruitful evangelism all throughout the history of the church. So Jonah was a prophet of the Lord God. And he had this call. And you might think, well, Jonah got to participate in the mission of God because he was a prophet. But what about me? There's somebody living in 2020 in Kennesaw, Ackworth, wherever you live. But you got to remember where you are in the story because we are actually much better equipped for God's mission than Jonah was. Yes, Jonah was a prophet, and we are not, but we're in union with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have actually a much better word to share with the nations than Jonah shared with Nineveh. Our word is not just a one-sentence warning where the invitation is implied but not spelled out all the way. We have the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who was foreshadowed by Jonah. Because like Jonah, Jesus also went out the city gates. But he didn't go out the city gates to pout or to build a booth and to hide in his own comfort. Jesus went outside the city gates to suffer and to die, to take on the full weight of our sin, to take on the wrath that we deserved for our sin, 
so that he could then, conquering death, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, send out his spirit, and mobilize his people down through the ages of history all around this world, that we could go and be a friend to the friendless, that we could go and be present amongst those who don't know their left hand from their right, and we could say, hey, I see you as a person, not just as another guy at work who's behind on his deadlines, not just as someone who cut me off in traffic or who took my spot in line at my local restaurant. I see you as a person, and I recognize that. And we can have hearts that are so, so gripped by God's compassion that we don't just see people, we see individuals who have names. We don't ever find ourselves saying, I hate people. Pitying you know, animals on commercials and things like that, like Jonah pitied the plant, but never taking the time to weep for sinners around us, to get to know them, to abide with them, what would it be like for us as a church in 2020 when everyone's just waiting for Christians to get mad about something in the news to instead be known as a church where if you come here, you're gonna find a friend. If you come here, you're gonna be part of a community where you're known and you are loved, where people will abide with you through thick and thin, where we're not afraid for you to open up about your doubt, where we're not afraid for you to wrestle with really messy stuff. We're gonna walk with you. We're gonna worship with you. We're gonna pray with you. We're gonna love you well because of the compassion we have received, we recognize then the compassion we are to show. This is why Jesus railed against hypocrisy. And so many of his parables are all about someone receiving an amazing amount of compassion and then turning around and not showing it, and they are condemned for that. This is the parallel between Jonah and the parable of the two sons of the prodigal son. Because everyone knows about the prodigal son, the wayward son who gets a lot of grace, and that was Jonah, in this story in the first half, but the elder brother who's standing outside the party and says, I can't hang out with those people. I can't hang out with that brother. I don't have any compassion for him. And the father invites him in and says, won't you come join us? It's the same invitation Jonah has here. Won't you join me, Jonah, again in this mission? As I pity these Ninevites, the Lord says to him, would you not pity them too? And the same invitation stands to us this morning. We ought to think where is the Lord shaping us by his compassion? Who is around us that needs a good friend? In our families, in our workplaces, wherever the place may be, it is a very ordinary thing. We don't have to add more to our lives to participate in God's mission. We just need to have our eyes open and our hearts gripped by his compassion that we can participate in that. And so as we wrap up this series, we see that Jonah 4, 5 through 11 teaches us that our anger reveals what we love most. It just does. And, and often it reveals that we love a lot of things that maybe we shouldn't love so much, like comfort. But then we see that God, as he was patient with Jonah, he's patient with us, and he's working in our lives, using discomfort to reshape our love for him and for our neighbor. I'm not saying that answers every question about the problem of evil and suffering in the world, but a lot of times when God is messing up our plans and his sovereignty, he's doing so because he's trying to pull us into something much bigger than ourselves, much more beautiful and good. And so we see ultimately then that God's compassion shapes us for his mission. And so it, it is good that we'll get to come to the table this morning, but think about again how our church could grow in our community and who might you be able to befriend that one day could join us here at this table and come taste and see the compassion of the Lord that Jonah experienced that Nineveh experienced, and that we get to experience week in and week out. If you would, please pray with me. Oh Lord, our God, you are good. And Lord, you are compassionate. Lord, you are patient, and you are sovereign and powerful. 
Um, Father, we thank you for all the things you've taught us through the book of Jonah. Lord, we pray that you would shape our church, our community by this story, Lord. Help us not just to walk out of here thinking that, oh, wow, that was a great story. But Lord, would you take it and by the power of your spirit, Lord, would you bear fruit in our lives through your word. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see all those around us that we can, can lean into their lives and love them well. Oh, Lord, we know that you desire for your family to get bigger and we know that you've put us here and you've put each of us individually as well as our church and our community corporately. You've placed all of us, Lord, where you've placed us that you might use us for your glory. Help us to see, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to idolize comfort and all these other things we devote our lives to that we miss out, Lord, on the glories of the joys and the wonders of being members of your kingdom, of being part of the mission that you're doing, the mission, Lord, that has rescued us. Lord, would you give us the joy of seeing others rescued in Christ as well. We thank you again for this time. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.